Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and I'm happy to welcome our guests for this week's episode, Chris Miller and Tom Hutchison. And today we'll be discussing our sermon passage from this past weekend, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. And also, I want to say a big thank you to Tim Cockrell, a great job, well done, in handling this important passage of Scripture during our Sunday sermon uh, series. And Chris and Hutch, thanks for joining me today. It's great to have you back. It's our pleasure. Always good to be with you, Bart. Okay, well, before we discuss the passage at hand here in Matthew chapter 19, I don't want to let the moment pass. We've just observed Martin Luther King Day this week, and it's appropriate that we have recently moved through some key passages in Matthew dealing with sin and reconciliation, uh, specifically as we look back at chapter 18. And Chris, you reminded us in your opening comments just this past Sunday that we should be looking to minister to and encourage those in our society who are, or perhaps historically, have been marginalized. What might that look like, and what does that look like in the local church setting? Uh, good question, Bart. I think we should first you know, admit that this is a hard thing. And it's partly hard, I think, because I, I think most of us just have a blind spot for this. We don't think that we err in the situation. We, we feel like we're pretty good, and we don't feel like we're overlooking people. And that's why one of the things I tried to, to demonstrate was when you have a situation where you feel like an outsider deeply for an extended period of time, that's when I think you begin to to notice what that feels like and what it looks like. And so if you haven't had one of those, I pray the Lord brings those into your life so you can empathize. <laughs> but, but number two, I think what it looks like in a local congregation is opening your eyes to look for people on the margins. And instead of doing what I do, which is wrong, and looking first for my friends or the powerful— to say, who is here that Jesus would notice that I'm overlooking? And then strike up a conversation and talk or go out to lunch, or if you're really serious about it, just be proactive and see where that goes. Yeah, I've had similar experiences overseas where I felt that awkwardness and mm. out of place and so appreciated people helped me through that. Um, but I've also had the experience here in the States in a different church that I was used to. As I was going through my doctoral program, I met someone who became a friend who was teaching at a local Lutheran university, and I went to one of his chapels one day. And what was amazing to me is having grown up in the church and all of the things you would expect to be very similar when I got there, I felt so out of place. The uh, front of the sanctuary looked very different. The tables were in a different place. The sermon was much shorter. The hymnal was divided into sections that I didn't realize, and so while I was standing there, he had to reach over and help me find a place in the hymnal. <laughs> and I, I laugh at it, <clears throat> but it, it has always prompted me to think about the number of ways that the way we do church, that we just assume is the way you're supposed to do church, mm -hmm. may not be the way everybody does church. The way we dress, mm -hmm. the way we say things, the music that we get so locked into has to be a certain style or sound a certain way, mm -hmm. the phrases and vocabularies we use. And so learning to have the kind of family, the kind of community here in the church that could actually talk about things and what's understood and not understood and listen to some different ways, it's, it's really easy for us to get locked into even our kind of church or liturgical traditions, assuming this is right uh, versus 
There's people who will feel like an outsider when they're here, even though they may be a brother or sister in Christ. They mm-hmm. feel like they don't belong. Mm-hmm. And being sensitive to the way we build a, a church community that talks and is much more open and, and learning learning from each other. In those so places. are you saying you have to be an extrovert when you come to church? You have to kind of be proactive and make sure people aren't feeling outside like outsiders. Now, Chris, I'm the one who's best asked the question, but that's a really good one. I'm glad you asked it. I, I don't know that I'd say an extrovert because that would be such a stretch for me. <laughs> but I would agree that some kind of intentionality yeah. of looking for yep. people. And um, I uh, I read an article a while back, and the it, it was titled "Why I Don't Sit with My Husband at Church." And the woman said that they had made a conscious decision that when they would go to church, they wouldn't sit together because they knew as soon as they did and they got comfortable talking to each other, people would feel like they were intruding. They would go in and intentionally, on a mission, go different directions to find someone, whether it was the single, whether it was the couple that was new, whether it was the widow, someone that might not feel connected Mm -hmm. and go to intentionally sit by them and talk to them. Um, and it's funny because there was a point after they did that quite a while, they had a Sunday where they sat together and somebody would come up and go, what's wrong? You guys are sitting together. <laughs> but it just has made me think more about what it means to look for people who may be feeling out of place, even if they're sitting there and everything looks good on the outside, inside that feeling of impostorship, feeling mm-hmm. like I don't belong here, mm-hmm. or if people really knew me. And just being intentional, even as simple as saying hello and asking questions mm-hmm. and listening and talking becomes very important in the church. So perhaps not only those people who look different, but perhaps those people who look like they don't want to be bothered. Because that's what we often do, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We sit there and we try to hide ourselves so that nobody notices how uncomfortable we actually feel. Mm -hmm. And I can think of uh, numerous times that people have uh, have responded once I go up to them, and I am the extrovert. And so go up to them, and they open up just because somebody actually approached them. Somebody yeah. made them feel welcome. Mm. Great stuff. And what about things that we do at church? Uh, now, we've talked about even in, uh, in leadership meetings where we don't talk in code. We don't, we don't want to talk in uh, uh, Christianese. In, Christianese in the whatever acronyms that we call something. But are there other things that we can do? I mean, dress is certainly one that has changed dramatically over the past number of years. I'm thinking of, uh, of any number of, you know, you talk about, now I can tell you from uh, my childhood, I could tell you when to stand up and sit down. We're not quite that much, uh, that liturgical, uh, if you want to call it that anymore. Are there other things we should be looking at in church? I think some of it is making sure we try to, keep cliches out, though things over time become cliches, and actually explaining what we're doing. Um, We often don't think about giving instructions or even just explaining what, for example, an ABF is or what small groups do or their purpose. Um, To just talk in church about why we do the things we do. But I do think also beyond just the church service, there's a moment there for conversation to break through, break the ice, if you will, and, and get to know people. But then when you can get into ABFs and get into small groups where there's actually conversations and asking questions that would allow them to speak and share their life experience and you share it as well and go to scripture together and in ways, places where you can admit, I don't understand what you're saying or that seems very foreign to me. Um, and when we do that, just being open to potentially new ways to do things. And I've, I've been in 
a church like ours all my life and just watch where when you do something just a little bit different in the worship service suddenly <laughs> people are upset oh yeah you get looks and people are upset and and yet there's others who are very confused by the things that they're used to and again we just take a lot of that for granted rather than actually having conversations about it yeah that's good i i just think we ought to have more people wearing plaid shirts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, spoken by Mr. Plaid. Well, let's move on. Continue now with with a key area in our society that often results in conflict, and that's the institution of marriage. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that in spite of how far certain current-day philosophers and cultural commentators they suggest that we have evolved societally, uh, I question that, of course, but we still have conflict in the area of marriage. Yeah, that's a good thing. Let's talk about. It. I mean, God uses marriage as a as the the mortar and pestle to help refine our character, right? And so, it's not. I I don't think there's any marriage with an absence of conflict. The question is, how do you handle it, and do you use it to make each other better? <clears throat> do you? I think this is probably true for everyone. But my wife and I found out that there were two major steps in our lives, two two major sanctification steps in our lives as we became adults. And the first was when we got married and realized how selfish each one of us were individually. And then the second thing was having children and realizing we were still selfish and having to care for someone who couldn't respond back. And and those things were conflicts and hard but deeply sanctifying. So in, in some ways, we're not trying to avoid conflict. We're trying to manage it and make sure it happens in the right way at the right time. In the, I mean, the two quotes on marriage that just always stick in the back of my mind is Gary Thomas's comment that marriage isn't intended for our happiness. Marriage is intended for our holiness. Mm-hmm. And that it's purposely designed by God to put us into a context where those two people can move towards God and be closer to God than they ever could alone in ways they can help each other. And and part of what goes along with that is Ruth Graham's quote talking about her relationship with Billy when she just said that I determined very early on in a relationship that if two people always agreed, one of them was unnecessary. I bet I know which one and that one it was. <laughs> and to to understand that in marriage you have a different perspective and a different personality and different experience, and you learn together and grow together in many ways, but those differences can push you forward. And having someone challenge your ideas and engage that in ways that are helpful can protect and can help you make decisions better than you would apart. And there's a joy in working through those conflicts, as Chris mentioned, but in a culture which tends to present that the whole goal of this is for me to feel happy and you make my life better and things should always feel good, uh, we often don't like to take the hard road or the difficult road of doing what's best and what actually produces the the blessings that God would have in mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. And I think I think Pastor Tim hit pretty hard. He was I think it was a very balanced message that he spoke on Sunday and he was compassionate. But one of the things he he did say, he wanted to hold uphold the sanctity and say, if we go into this with the thought that if it doesn't make us happy, maybe we can quit, is a pretty bad way to work through a problem. But if you go in committed saying, whatever it takes, we're going to stay together, that's another way to work through, to have that attitude that says we're going to persevere and we're going to do this right and we're going to work together. Now, it, it works well if 
both people are on the same page. And let's face it, that isn't always the case. We are in you know the the no fault divorce era, mm-hmm. and I know I growing up, it was not until I was six that I even thought that that could be a possibility. I remember the day I came home from school in first grade, mm-hmm. and somebody was getting divorced. I had to ask, "What does that mean?" It says, mm-hmm. "Mom and Dad are not going to live together anymore," uh-huh. and I thought. You mean that can happen? Mm-hmm. I remember when Sandy and I got to marry, got married and got demarried. I've already got started that DI there. Uh, but the divorce was not even, and we told each other divorce was not an option. Mm-hmm. Not sure that's the case anymore. No. no. It really isn't. And so people are going into it, as you said, with, mm-hmm. with the idea that if it doesn't work out or there is an easy out. And if you're going into marriage thinking that things will always be happy, and you'll always have that mm-hmm. rosy picture, you really should stay away from marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, if you're not married, you're not going to have every day rosy and happy. The, the reality is we keep thinking something outside of ourselves, some relationship, some other person is what will ultimately make me happy and give me this sense of joy that I want every day in life. And we're not f- looking for that kind of fulfillment that should only be coming from Jesus Christ and a relationship mm-hmm. with him. And when you do that, then these other things take on a very different perspective. And that's where so many times you find the marriage failing when suddenly everybody feels like there's this missing piece in my life. And if I had this person, suddenly everything would be good in the way I want it. Mm-hmm. They're looking for fulfillment in something that will never truly satisfy. And it takes me to, now you, to the idea of singleness. You mentioned, Chris, that uh, marriage is sanctified. And uh, Paul, I believe, uh, speaks to this in what is it, First Corinthians chapter 7, mm-hmm. right in that, where the husband, the unbelieving husband, might be sanctified by his wife. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of sanctification, singles, where does that put singles? If they're not in a marriage, what are some of the ways that you, that, we see in Scripture God and Christ instructing them or the apostles instructing singles? Oh, well, I guess I guess we have, uh, you know, Paul as an example and Jesus as an example in some ways. Good examples. Yeah, um, but especially Paul still needing the rough edges knocked off. I suppose that happens again, you know, in friendships, in deep friendships, in church friendships, um, you, you, it, when you live together with someone, whether it's a spouse or even in a college dorm, a roommate, when you live close all the time, conflicts <laughs> come out, don't they? Yeah. He certainly does. Well, uh, let's face it. We're working against what feels like, uh, I would call it a tsunami uh, in the form of t- society's efforts to discredit a biblical understanding of marriage. And you go back to 2013, the Supreme Court decision here in the United States that effectively legalized same-sex marriage. You've got recent court rulings and laws about the transgender movement. It's not as easy as it used to be even to discuss these topics. Mm-hmm. And... We're dealing here in a passage of Scripture where it talks about he created them from the beginning, male and female, talking about man and wife. But now even those basic concepts are being turned upside down, and people are saying, yeah, but what does that mean? And it is interesting. You know, I grew up in a church culture, as I know many people my age with it, from a church background did, where they would talk about being countercultural. But when they talked about going against the grain of the culture, they meant you dressed a certain way, <laughs> you had certain clothes, you didn't listen to certain music, there, there was a very specific vocabulary, something that made you stood out, 
at times, honestly, almost made you stand out as being odd. Um, and yet, often, what wasn't underneath that was the countercultural nature of Christ's commands in his kingdom to live with his ethic, to live with his values and with his goals. And we live in a day where there is a press against marriage. The, uh, the, the perspectives we talked about in terms of marriage being about me and me being happy is pushed from the culture that that's what you should be looking for. And the very hallmark perspective of how this is going to make the rest of my life everything I wanted it to be in that relationship. And in a culture which says I can live my way and do things the way I want and I can define who I am and what I am and I can define the boundaries for sexual behavior and for marriage, just to understand that a commitment to Christ is going against the stream and living counterculturally. And in its most basic form here, it's being committed to faithfulness in marriage, whether that's as a single, whether that's as a married person, um, to continue with this idea that marriage is a gift from God and given very purposefully and to honor that and to live faithfully within that is a way that we're following Christ that goes very much against the grain of the culture. Because it, like you were talking about, Chris, it means that I have to surrender my goals and my priorities and everything I want because if there's another person in the equation mm-hmm. and I have to think about what's best for them. Yeah. That goes against the grain of culture, <laughs> yeah. which says it's all about me. Exactly. And and we uh, in, in our culture today, you certainly can see the decay. And so that's something that makes older people or people have been around nervous and we think about the good old days. But the truth is that when you take a look at the Bible times, Roman culture and Greek culture, it was far worse than what we have today. So I don't think we need to worry that the church can't stand or that God's values can't stand in the culture. It just, the darker it gets, the easier it is to shine a little brighter. And I do think over time there's natural consequences that people make and societies make that like a pendulum force them to come back in time. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that all throughout history. Um, I, when I first started being a youth pastor in the Milwaukee area, and this is over 30 years ago, I went around and met two or three of the school superintendents of very large school districts in the area just to say, I'm in the area, I want to know more about the students in the area, and want you to know that I'm here if I can help or be of any service or whatever. And I, I asked each of them what they thought the biggest challenge or the biggest struggle their high school students faced in that day. Um, and we're talking back in the late 80s and early 90s, having a, a superintendent, and I have no reason to believe they were a believer. They gave no indication even of religious background or anything like that. But they said the, the most impactful thing they see of students consistently over and over is when their parents divorce. And how academically mm-hmm. they would fall, they would fall out of step with friends. They just kind of lost a purpose in life that, as they described it, it was just devastating to them. And when you look at that and you look at the statistics that um, couples who cohabitate are not as satisfied in marriage, <laughs> nor do those marriages tend to last as long. We, over time, there's going to be an impact of going against God's pattern for life. Mm-hmm. And I think that will force the culture to adjust it. And we've seen that through history as well. So what you're saying, it sounds like, is that there's nothing new under the sun and that we have nuances here, but really the thrust of it is pretty much the same as we've seen throughout recorded history. Mm -hmm. And as Chris said, with Roman times, Jesus is speaking at a time when marriage was on the decline. I mean, they had sex available anywhere they wanted. Um, Many men didn't want to marry because it was a financial liability Mm -hmm. and they could 
be satisfied sexually anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there were times conversations of fear of the Roman empire dying out because marriage being so on the decline. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not new phenomena to see today. And Jesus was speaking directly into that moment. Mm -hmm. Well, you and I, though, we do have to deal with these realities and it's, it's uncomfortable sometimes. I mean, they are, I called them nuances, but they are new to us Mm -hmm. and new to, uh, new to humanity in many ways. I mean, back before we did not have gender reassignment surgery. Let's just Mm -hmm. take that as an example. Mm -hmm. But in the context of how marriage is being redefined by our society and within our society, how would you instruct a Christian to respond biblically to same-sex marriage, transgender movement, anyone who is promoting an unbiblical view of male and female, as we read it here in chapter 19, and of marriage? Well, I, I suppose the, this is a multifaceted question. I suppose if I had a chance to vote against it, I would vote against it. <laughs> but I certainly wouldn't want to come out against the person. I would want to win the person. Um, and I really do think that one of the best defenses here is a good offense in the sense that we need to make much of marriage, make much of the fruit of marriage of children and families, and husbands and wives, and so the most one of the most powerful testimonies I can do is to love my own wife and love my own children, and let people see the positive example of that. Um, so that would be my first line of reasoning. And I think just to restate what Chris said too, you know, you asked the question, how do we respond to these um, different approaches to marriage, same-sex marriage, and other things like that? And we want to really carefully differentiate how do we respond to those positions versus how do we respond to people who are practicing those things Mm -hmm. differently than us. Mm -hmm. And so we live in a society that allows us to vote and speak into ways we think that would be best for our society. So vote and speak Mm -hmm. and present your case and show how you're living it out and, and be part of a community that's actually honoring marriage and it has positive benefits that you can display. Mm -hmm. Speak into the culture well, but don't use that position now to leverage attacking people instead of demonstrating love and grace to them. Mm-hmm. Love and grace. And is it safe to say that our brands of Christianity have often been seen as not being gracious and loving? I think they've mixed those questions up. <laughs> taking a stand against this position on marriage means I'm taking a stand against you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think those need to be carefully distinguished. Yeah. If you disagree with me, you hate me. Yeah. And, and it goes both ways. And it, it, all you have to do, really, is just go back to the New Testament and take a look at the stories of Jesus. And you see the way he treated people from every background and every situation. And it's not hard to find him dealing with, you know, people who are outcasts, the woman caught in adultery, those kinds of stories. And you realize there's a very gracious, personal warmth where people of all stripes were attracted to him. And the fact that these questions were being asked about divorce show that they had, even in their culture there, mm-hmm. people who were divorced. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay, so we could move forward looking at this from the perspective of the Pharisees, and they're asking how they can escape when marriage isn't fun or convenient. But let's address the way Jesus deals with their question from verse 3. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
and like he did when he began his public ministry, he gets in front of the whole idea and the whole issue by dealing with it from Scripture, and he reminds him of the purpose and the nature of marriage. So how can we take what he says here? I'm going to give it to you in phrases, and why don't you just respond what you think of when you were hearing these phrases. First of all, he created them. That's a that's a powerful game changer right there. <laughs> what that means is not only is God the boss, the creator, and therefore has authority, but it also means he's the ingenious designer and knows how the machine is supposed to work. So when the creator designs this perfectly, you, you'd have to be kind of a fool to ignore the original design. And when you go back to Genesis one twenty seven and read the entire verse, it seems there's the same idea repeated, but three different ways. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that God, in his purpose, created them intentionally by design and in his image, the only in creation to represent him that way, the only aspect of creation to represent him that way. But as part of that, he created them, <laughs> not him. <laughs> so that there was a very purposeful way God designed for male and female. Okay, so he created them, he created them purposely. Next phrase, from the beginning. Yeah, the original design, the uncorrupted design, the way it was supposed to be. All of those things are are ways that Jesus describes, you know what you're doing now has has been allowed because of your hardness of heart, but it's not the right way. And when you go back to the Garden of Eden in in a context where their worship of God, their relationship with God was unhindered, with no regrets, um, completely sold out, seeing God in every aspect, honoring him, finding joy and satisfaction in that, and then for him to create this relationship where as male and female, they live together with a harmony. When, when scripture says they were naked and unashamed, no embarrassment, no regret. They were living out God's design in ways where they were experiencing the fulfillment it was intended that pointed them towards God as the true satisfaction. And so it does also, from the beginning, tell you that there was a time where we have an example of a couple who lived together in harmony, found full satisfaction and joy. All of the things we talk about being part of marriage are not part of mm -hmm. marriage. They're part of sinful people being in marriage. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay, next phrase, male and female. Seems pretty simple, but... From the beginning, there were differences. Mm -hmm. And God chose that his image would best be represented by not one sex, but by male and female. Yep. And that those differences brought together in harmony in, as Tim referenced, the one flesh relationship um, in unity within God's design that represents God best and honors him best and is the design he had for people to to live male and female and you don't have the phrase down here bart but in that context uh, she is his helper again we often think of that as the servant but of course we know the phrase is the lord is my helper it's not um a, a, a phrase that we would look down upon but something which i provide for you the complementary strength which you need so okay and then man and wife again a, a covenantal pattern 
mm-hmm. of this man and woman living with a commitment to God, to each other, and publicly recognized that they were in this um, unique relationship intended just for the two of them to honor God's design and to live. And from the beginning, that has been God's plan. And that's what Jesus here refers to when they say, so can we get out of this for any reason? (laughs) If I don't like her cooking, (laughs) if I find a younger version, (laughs) whatever it is, oh, I've changed. He points right back to the beginning with God's plan of a lifelong commitment of the two in this covenant relationship as husband and wife as being the design of God from the beginning. And then one that uh, comes up a little later, and that is one flesh. It's, again, a description of the, the union that they share where two people who are different share this bond that brings them together in a very unique way. Um, there are times as you move across Scripture where even the, the physical intimacy in marriage is described in different ways, and one flesh is one of those. Um, as is um, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Or David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and she bore a child. Um, there's actually a whole range of those that give a picture of this relationship being one that is bonded together emotionally, spiritually, Um, physically, relationally, within this covenant and doing life together, there's a strengthening that comes for both of them to keep them close together and to keep them on track to honor God in a greater and greater way. And I think that's just this one picture um, that we're given of that kind of um, intimacy and this oneness that comes in the marriage relationship. I don't remember Tim's exact words, but they were something like... uh, that that sex within marriage here is a way to celebrate and to seal and strengthen the marriage bond. And the, the, those words get at the holistic purpose, right. I think. Yeah. Great, great. Well, guys, we're going to be moving on next week to the uh, latter part of Chapter 9. And so as we do that, give us an idea of how we can be preparing as a church. Well, we can certainly read through the passage in Chapter 19. Um, and we'll, we'll find out that Jesus is continuing his um, message about families. Uh, he talked about husbands and wives. He's talked about singles, and now he's going to talk about children. What, what better way to affirm marriage than to affirm the fruit, the children? Um, he'll talk about that. He'll talk about rewards. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting passage, I think, that's filled with a lot of different ideas. And I I have to back up and just add one other comment, and that is um, interacted with Barb Hunt, the children's director here at church, a while back. And she talked about a moment uh, in the past where she surveyed third graders in our church who regularly attended, just asking them what their greatest fear was. Mm. And those third graders' greatest fear, as they responded, was divorce. Wow. And to not take for granted that just because we are here and even the couples are sitting together and still married, that they're actually fulfilling God's design for living with this closeness and this intimacy and the the common commitment to move towards holiness, providing the kind of security and strength and support for their kids that is intended for in marriage. And, And so we've looked, you know, this last week at people who would want to excuse their own selfish behavior instead of saying, I'm committed to God's plan and God's way and finding satisfaction the way he intends. And he's going to now, in the next chapter, we're going to see children as a great example of what it means to trust um, 
and what it means to have that kind of simple faith. But then we're going to see an example of another person who's looking for satisfaction in another way, <laughs> being willing to trust his right. possessions and his money. And it comes back to, are you willing to put everything into Jesus and trusting him to find the full meaning satisfaction. And and it may not be this kind of a story where each of these threads are tying together exactly that way, but it keeps coming back to Jesus' teaching and, and his call to respond to him and follow his way and whether we're willing to do that. And we're going to see all kinds of examples of people who will go to lots of other places to live life the way they want rather than following Jesus. But I think it's a challenge for us and also for us as a church to actually not just be mouthing these words and filling the roles, but actually living it out meaningfully day to day. Very good. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us again. Chris Miller and Tom Hutchison have been our guests on this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing our recent scripture study and sermon from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. You can access this and most recent sermons from Grace Baptist Church, as well as each of our podcast episodes, by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking Podcast on the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join with us next week as we move further into chapter 19 of Matthew. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning in to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.